when I thought about this message, and more importantly, the context uh, which prompts this message, the word blitz came to mind. And most of you guys who watch sports kind of know what that is. It's basically facing formidable odds all coming at you at once. And that is a, a word that comes to my mind because I am privileged to a lot of conversations with a lot of different people in a lot of different walks of life in this congregation. And this is just my opinion. But it seems to me, based upon what people have shared with me, that we are, at least in the short time I've been here, which is about 11, 12 years, that there is an almost unprecedented pressure upon God's people today. And it's not merely economic or financial. It seems to be coming from almost every side, that there are um, moms and dads in this congregation who have adult children, sons and daughters, who are making tragic choices, and it is ripping their heart out. There are marriages in this congregation um, that are in the midst of conflict. Some of them feel like they have been sideswiped by, by unforeseen circumstances, and they are experiencing tremendous turmoil. And that's hard. It makes you feel like you have to labor to breathe when those kinds of things happen. That there are some in here who are laboring to take care of aging elderly parents. That even in the last month, we have lost a life unexpectedly, and someone else ended up in the hospital near death unexpectedly, and that's just a few. That there are sons that are going off to war, and we said goodbye to a father who was leaving for Iraq last night, leaving three children and a mother for a year. That's hard for a family. That there are people embroiled in, in legal battles right now that are, that are fierce and threaten their well-being. And then you add on to that the whole financial pressure that almost everybody feels at some level. That is, there is another wave of foreclosures taking place and people are feeling the pressing of the bank and some are defaulting on loans. And there are schools closing and people are losing jobs. So you put all that together and that all spells lots of pressure at one time. And I think people by and large, and I know not everybody's in that place, but I think most are facing something, that a lot of people feel like they have been reduced to mere survival. They're just trying to survive. That it feels like you're treading water and you're just trying to keep your lips above the waves and you're trying as hard as you can just hoping that you're not going to slip underneath the water. That's where a lot of people are. There's a lot of people feeling discouraged, depressed, stretched thin, merely surviving because there is this massive pressure on us and the truth of the matter is that pressure will either drive you to God or it will drive you from him it will either drive you to him or it will drive you from him there is no third way to him or away from him and I am thankful that God in his grace and in his wisdom provides answers for us. He provides examples for us of people living under pressure that didn't just manage to survive, but managed to serve, surge forward with a sense of power and joy. And one of those examples is found right here in the fourth chapter of Acts, which again is a gracious gift to us, and I hope it is a gift to you this morning, and you hear God speak through it, through their example. I think it's one of the reasons it's preserved here for us is so that we would see a church under tremendous pressure 
that didn't just merely survive. Acts chapter 4. Before we read, we're actually going to be looking at one of their prayers. But before we read it, let me just kind of draw back and, and give you a sense of the pressure that they were under. This prayer that we're about to study follows, follows the very first hostile verbal attack against the church. Threats are now made against the church. There has been amazing healing in chapter 3, which has caused a major commotion in the city of Jerusalem. And out of that, we find people coming to Jesus. The leadership doesn't like it, the political leaders. And so they call forward James and, or excuse me, Peter and John, and they question them. And then they say here in verse 21, after further threats, real threats, not hollow threats, as we will find out in the rest of the book, they have the authority to take life and they have the authority to imprison. Real threats, kind of mob-like threats. Go ahead and do that again and we're going to put some cement boots on you and we're going to drown you in the bay. Threats that bring with it feeling. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what, they had, what had happened. And the prayer, of course, is going to follow this. So this prayer follows the very first assault on God's people. So they're under the pressure of verbal hostility. Chapter 5, that verbal hostility turns to physical hostility as all of the apostles are brutally flogged. That's chapter 5. So now it's physical Chapter 6, one of the first disciples offers his life in worship to Jesus as he is stoned to death. So now there's the pressure of death. Chapter 7, there is an outbreak of systematic persecution on the entire church, this church in Acts chapter 4, that sends them running like refugees to the surrounding towns. You get to Acts chapter 7, you see that there is a famine in this town. So now there is shortage of food. That said... In short, they are under and have to bear up under tremendous pressure of verbal attack, physical attack, imprisonment, and death, and even a famine. And I dare say, whatever pressure we feel in this time, in this generation, with what's going on, that it's not as intense as they experience because no one's blood at this point is flowing and no one is behind bars. This church was under tremendous pressure, but astonishingly and amazingly enough, it wasn't reduced to mere survival. This is a church that surged ahead with joy and great power. It was surged ahead because the pressures that were brought to bear upon it drove it to God. That is to say, it drove this church to their knees on, in prayer. And that's what we see them doing. And I think a lesson for us today is that with this Growing, accumulating pressure upon this church that exceeds our own, we find the first thing that they do, the instinctive thing that they do, is they drop to their knees. This is what they do. I'm going to read beginning in verse 22, 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. That is, they told them about all the threats that had been made. You better shut up about Jesus right now, otherwise we are going to hurt you. When they heard this, they heard the threats, realized the pressure, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. That is, they unified prayer to God, and this is their prayer. 
I think one of the most astounding prayers in the book of Acts says, Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city, this city, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed And here's a kicker. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with greater boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miracles, signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Interesting to me that the first attack, hostile verbal attack, threats against the church And they respond on their knees. That is not the natural response of most Christians today. Most of us, our first instinct is to panic. What are we going to do? Or go anxious. Or retreat. If these political threats were made in our time, our first instinct would probably be, Hire a lawyer, gather together some cash and send it to Washington and have someone lobby for the religious freedoms that we enjoy. We'd pull out a pencil and paper and try and figure out some man-made way of getting out of the, the situation we find ourselves in. That wasn't the case with the early church. Their first instinct was to drop to their knees and to pray. And their prayer has two, if you will, parts to it. The first part, you'll notice that they begin by praising God's power. They begin by praising God's power, and only after they do, do they move to petition for God's purposes to flourish. They begin their prayer with the praising of God's sovereign, creative power. You'll notice how they begin their prayer, and it shows a lot about, it says a lot about the fabric of their faith, the bedrock of what this church believed and was convinced about the Lord. They call him Sovereign Lord. And then they ascribe to him the great power of you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, the one uncaused cause. They know that's the God to whom they are praying. The one who breathed it all into existence and with a very breath can, can annihilate everything. Not only are they praying and praising God for his sovereign creative power, but also for his comprehensive sovereign plan, namely his control even over the evil things that happen. That they understood and saw that in the death of Jesus, when Pontius Pilate and Herod conspired with the Gentiles to put him to death, which was the greatest attack against God history will and has ever seen, was the greatest attack of the demonic world, the greatest attack of the human world on God himself, what they understood was this evil, this pressure, was exactly what the Lord's power and will had decided before it ever happened should happen. That is, they were convinced that God's hand orchestrated it. 
that there was nothing outside the bounds of God's control. Which would help them not only understand that Jesus was a sovereign work of God's will and power, but here in chapter 4, when the threats are made, to understand that it's by the sovereign power and will that these threats are made. And in chapter 5, when they receive the lashings on their back, it is by the sovereign power and will that this happens. In chapter 6, when the first man gives his life, it is by the sovereign power and will of God that it happens. When systematic outbreak of persecution happens in chapter 7, it is the power and will of God that allows and decrees it to happen. And when the famine happens, it is in His control. Shouldn't that be the perspective in our day? That everything that is taking place, the things that bring joy, and also the things that bring pain, albeit a real pain, they all bow to the will of the one on the throne. Everything does. You lose that, you lose hope, and you lose faith. That God's design and God's purposes are in this. And no matter how big the problem The one who created the heaven and the earth and filled it is bigger. But how often we see our own realities like like a carnival mirror. The things that should be small are seen big and the things that are big are seen small. So that whatever we're facing, it tends to rise up like a titan in, in the background. God is diminished to a place of doubted or a disinterested bystander and we panic. What ends up happening is that though we profess to be theists with our lips, that is belief that God is in control, we end up panicking in the moment when we're plunged into the experience, we end up acting like atheists. I have been thinking a lot about something that I came across in my reading, and that is the difference between what some theologians call stated versus implicit faith. A stated faith is what you say. Implicit faith is what you really believe. And hopefully those two are one. What you say and what you really believe are the same. But at times, implicit faith, that what you really believe, is at variance with what we say. And you'll know what implicit faith is, what your really real faith is, when your life is plunged into experience. Then it will be tested and you will see whether you really believe that God is in control. Somehow we forget, or somehow our faith is just a little too small. And our problems rise up like titans and God is diminished. Not so with the early church. Their first instinct was to say, Sovereign Lord, creator of the heaven and the earth, the one who filled everything, it is by your plan and your power and your will that all these things have happened. That's their first instinct and response. They had a big God. A God that was bigger than all of their problems. And they knew that was the first place to go. The image that comes to my mind when I think about this early church and the example that they set for us is the image of a little child standing 10, 20 feet away from its father or its mother. And when that child feels like they're threatened or a stranger comes up, instinctively that child runs for the leg of its mother or father, sometimes just out of shyness, sometimes 
they're not sure who it is, and so they hold on to that leg. You know, my kids do that. Even my big kids sometimes do that. They instinctively grab hold of the leg of the father or mother, knowing that they stand in the shadow of their protection. That's what this church did. The first sign of threat, they ran for the leg. They ran for the shadow of God's sovereign power, the creator of the universe. That's where they went, and that's where they held on to. That's why they got on their knees and prayed. They were casting themselves upon his power, upon his sovereign will. It's what men of faith have done throughout the ages. Think of David, Psalm chapter 3, when he said to the Lord, O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Tens of thousands are rising up against me. And his instinct, as was the early church, was to run to the leg. It was to run to his father so that he could say, You, not my armies, but you are a shield around me. Therefore, I will not fear. It is this fundamental belief in the great immeasurable power of God and His sovereign will over all of our problems that gives people peace in time of storm. That's why their prayer starts this way. Sovereign Lord. So the first part, you see, begins with the praise of God's power. Praise of His creative power. Confidence in His sovereign will. Even to bend with his mighty arms, evil to his, to his perfect purposes. Well, that's the first part of the prayer. And then the second part moves then to petition. And now they're going to ask the Lord something. On their knees, they ask, verse 29, Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. They have just been, again, threatened not to speak. And now they're praying for greater enablement. That is a power word. And they're asking the Lord for the power so that your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand. That is a phrase that comes from Exodus chapter 15, verse 8. After the Lord had blown the doors off of the Egyptian army and drowned the entire mass of them, and Moses said, you stretched out your hand. They're asking for the same stretched out arm that is a a figure of speech of power. Lord God Almighty, stretch out your mighty hand to heal and perform miracles and signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I find it instructive that the early church had no problem embracing the comprehensive sovereignty of God that recognized in the death of Jesus what happened was decided beforehand, on the one hand, And the God who hears and listens, responds, and intervenes on the other. The God is holy, transcendent, sovereign, determined all things. At the same time, He enters time, history, human experience, and listens to us. And in some serious way, responds to us. Hence, they say, consider, that's what they're saying, consider their threats. In other words, draw attention to it. Bring your eyes close and see what's happening so that you will intervene and do something about it. They were confident that God not only existed, but that God would intervene. That he listened to the prayers of his people. He responds to the prayers of his people. It's part of why they prayed. It was their first instinct to pray. They believed God was actually there. It's what George Mueller, who lived a couple hundred years ago, the great prayer warrior said 
He called this belief that God actually exists, he called it a living realization of the presence of God. In other words, it's not a wish that he was there or a hoping that he might be there or guessing that he may be out there somewhere and he may be listening. But a living realization of the presence of God, that God is there. That he is a hearing, seeing, responding, intervening God. Sovereign, yes, but intervening and caring and listening to the prayers of his people. And so they pray with this faith, this realization that he is there. And when we begin to transfer from the I hope he's there to I know he's there then prayer becomes a compulsion. But not just any kind of prayer. Their petitions, you notice there's two. One surrounds their words. The second surrounds works of healing and miracles and so forth. That the central heart of their prayer was singular, their petition. And the central heart of their prayer was that God's unfolding kingdom would continue in power. Or to put it differently, that the power of Christ might continue to be brought to bear on the world, changing lives and changing people, changing cities, changing the world. They didn't want to see that momentum stop, and so they are praying, essentially, a very Christ-centered, kingdom-centered prayer. They are not praying for the opposition to be removed. They're not praying for God to strike down lightning and rain down fire on the leadership of Jerusalem. They are praying that the movement continues to move forward in power. You'll notice in each of those basic requests, Jesus is at the center. When he says, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word. Your word is primarily and fundamentally about what Jesus did in the death on the cross, in his resurrection, his ascension, and his supreme authority over all things. And that in his name there is liberation, in his name there is life, in his name there is power. So they are asking for the word about Jesus to go forward in power. They are also asking that works would go forward with power that testify to the power of Christ. Hence you have stretched forth your hand to heal and perform miracles, miraculous signs, wonders, through the name of your holy servant Jesus. So when people see crippled people who have been crippled for 40 years standing on their own two feet, they know beyond a shadow of a doubt of the power of Christ. It's about Christ. That's the central heartbeat of this church, which is instructive for us, I think. But to back up a little bit, when they asked for enablement for your servants to speak your word with great boldness, that is a phrase that must be taken to heart by the modern church. We are facing a lot of political and cultural pressure not to even mention the name Jesus today. Now, they haven't threatened us with prison yet. But there is still pressure. And how many cower underneath the social pressure not to speak up when you know and feel prompted to by the Spirit of God to say something in a classroom? Not necessarily as a teacher, but as a student. Because you're afraid. The disciples knew back then that the only way that the Word would go forth and the natural tendency to be a coward would be overcome is by the power of God. 
burning that word in the soul of his people so they couldn't contain it. It reminds me a little of what Jeremiah said when he said, Your word, O God, is like a fire. It's a fire in my bones, and I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot hold it in. When Jesus is the best thing to you, when his power, the power of his word is experienced by you, and then you can't hold it in, it must find vent. They're praying, enable us again to speak the words that bring life. So they're praying for the word to be unleashed. They're also praying for God to do the miraculous, to heal people, to perform Miraculous signs and wonders. And for my part, I don't believe it's wrong for God's people to continue to pray that way. Allowing God to do it in His time when He wants to. The world might sit up and take notice that God still does heal people in ways that bypass normal medical technology. That He can. And around the world in places He does. And to pray for that but also to pray that God's power would also accompany the more ordinary works. Calling somebody on the phone, mowing an elderly person's lawn, praying with somebody, bringing them a care package. Those kinds of things can also be used by the power of God to show the love of Christ too. You know, it's interesting that they're praying for word and work to be wedded together in power. In the same way Jesus' ministry was word and work wedded together in power. In the same way that the gospel goes forth and should go forth with word and work wedded together in power. And that's what they're praying. But to bring it back to the center, you notice their central passion. The central passion of their prayer was Christ and his kingdom. To see it move forward and surge forward in power. In other words, to put it in the negative Their primary concern in their praying was not the preservation of their financial well-being. Their primary concern and passion in their prayers was not for the future of their children. Their primary passion and concern in their prayers wasn't winning a legal battle. Their primary concern and passion in their prayers wasn't even to have the happiest marriage. The primary concern passion in their hearts was not simply for the safety of our sons and husbands who have gone off to war. Their primary concern and primary passion is that the kingdom of God would advance and the power of Christ would change lives. That was their burning desire. That's why it was instinctively the first thing that they prayed for. Lord, stretch out your hand. Enable your church, your feeble church to speak again with power. And with those, that passion, with that praise of God's power, and with the petition for his purposes to be accomplished, you, of course, see what happens. Verse 31 says, After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all, all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. In other words, there was a second infilling of this corporate body, which tells me since it's the second time, and it was corporate, that God can and may do that. Infill his body in a massive corporate way where they're all filled with the Spirit and God moves in a corporate powerful way. The Spirit again blows in this church, and it, again, doesn't just survive. It surges forward 
through death, through famine, through imprisonment, it surges forward. Now I know right now some of you are probably in light of what's going on in the pressures of life or on the edge of tears or feel like you're in bondage to your own anxiety and you can't get free from it. I don't think for one moment, based upon this example and the rest of what the New Testament teaches, that God wants us to live as people with our lips half an inch above the water, struggling just to survive. God has, by, on the basis of the cross and the power of His Spirit, has caused, called us to surge forward with power and with joy, not in our own strength, but in the mighty power that created the world, sovereignty that governs and controls all things, and a heart that prays knowing that God is there. And he's responsive. He intervenes. And he answers. I don't believe God wants us to merely survive in this day. He wants us to search forward. And if there, if I say this, if there is a lack of power today in your life, And in the church, I dare say it's either because we do not have a deep faith in the power of God, first part of the prayer, or our lives are out of alignment with the purposes of God. We oftentimes mistakenly think that, okay, I'm going to choose my direction in life, and Lord, will you bless me on my direction? Will you give me strength and power to go my direction? The thing about the kingdom of God is he does not live on our terms. We live on his. Like, no, you need to adjust your life to my purposes. My power flows in my direction. And that is kingdom first. Jesus first. Wanting to see the power of God change lives first. And when your life begins to align to that, and you're praying, Lord God, blow this this life forward because I want Jesus to change my life and other lives more than I want anything else. That's where the power is found. We're all a little bit like sailboats in that respect. If we find ourselves powerless, perhaps it's because a sail is facing the wrong direction. So we find ourselves in the doldrums of a windless sea because we're going our own way. We have our own purpose that we're pursuing. But if by the grace of God, Jesus becomes more important than everything else, and our sails are turned into the wind. And we cry out to the Lord, and we say, Oh, Lord God of heaven, will you stretch out your hand once again, enable us to speak your word, and our sails are in line with that purpose and the wind of God, then you can expect God to answer, I think, every time in his way and in his timing, but he will answer because that is his passion. When our passions are aligned with his passion, the son's passion, and the spirit's passion, then you have things happen like after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were filled with God's spirit, and they surged forward. And from my limited perspective, I see God turning the sails of people, some slightly, some more than others. And I don't say that just by way of effect or impact. I mean that. I yet heard another story this last week of a lady who held hands with another lady over a wooden fence because the lady on the other side was distraught and hurting. And instead of walking away, saying, I'll pray for you, she prayed for her right there, held the hands, and as she prayed, the woman broke. 
And she's praying that the power of Christ would heal and bring strength to her, which is honoring to the Lord. And then when God provides the strength, then Christ is exalted. That is going in the right direction. That's putting your wind sail into the wind. You don't even have to just see something single like that. You can read the Daily Republic sometimes and see it. I don't know how many of you read the paper yesterday in a way that compared some of the stories, but God's doing something. On one page, you have darkness. The headline reads, Fairfield Police Search for Shooting Suspect. The first sentence reads this, A volley of gunshots at the Grove's apartments. On East Tabor Road left a Fairfield man seriously injured with a gunshot wound in the abdomen. And apparently it was enough of a crime that they sealed off whole corners of the complex. Because the last statement reads, The crime scene spanned the entire length of the apartment complex with yellow tape um, cornering off two parking lots and two multiple unit buildings, one of them with a foyer damaged by several bullet holes. It's one of the darkest places in Fairfield and a place where the wind needs to blow. And it is starting to blow. God put in the hearts of some of the people in this congregation the idea, along with the city, God clearly leading in a work of providence that, you know, we need to do a tutoring center over there. So the one that we started here was replicated and is now going over there in the very place where bullets were flying. Because some people's sails are going in the right direction. And in the same paper where you have darkness in one article, you have a light in another one. Same paper. Headline reads, soccer camp offers tutoring, exercise, fun. Jasmine Gonzalez watched her seven-year-old daughter, Annette Gonzalez, line up with other children to participate in a series of soccer drills Thursday morning at the Groves apartment complex. Wearing a red soccer outfit and cleats, Annette practiced dribbling, kicking, and running um, as part of a free soccer camp offered as part of the Levin's Summer Success Program. Levin is a nonprofit faith-based tutoring group. The camp is taught by volunteers from... Vacaville Christian High School boys soccer team, three of whom go to this church. But I want you to see, I want you to feel, God is more powerful than a dark neighborhood. And when you believe that, and when you're willing to pray for that, And when those who are selected are willing to go to that and set sail and then pray, oh, Lord God, will you change? Will you bring the power of Christ to bear upon this dark neighborhood? We're going to see, continue to see what God is doing, that he is alive. He is here. And the only thing that's going to change the decaying, dark, infected world in which we live is the power of Christ. That's it. Period. That's setting your sail in the right direction. I read things like that and my heart just leaps. And it gives me hope and I hope it gives you hope. But you know what? As fun as it is to read this, to watch a game, it's even better to be in it. God has placed you somewhere in the city, somewhere in another city or someplace. And I don't think you have a clue. I don't think any of us have a clue as to what God could and can and will do When Jesus becomes the focal center, when we trust in the power of God that it it dwarfs all other problems, and when we're able to pray in faith, Lord, stretch out your hand. 
do your works and give your servants power to speak. It's at that point, not only do we see God working, but we experience God's working not only through us, but therein lies the experience of God's Spirit is moving with him, not your own way. I'd like to close this by asking if we back up and not say ask. I would like us to pray this ancient prayer with the church. I'd like us to pray the two parts. Praise God for his power, and if you aren't convinced that his power is bigger than your problem, then you ask that he convinces you. Lord, convince me that your power is bigger than my problems. That's the first part. And the second part is simply to pray the petition. Lord, get one, give us a passion for your son, but stretch out your hand in our lives, through our words, through our actions, and make an impact. Let the wind blow again. So those two things, power and the petition for God to stretch forth his hand. And what I'd like you to do, if you're okay doing this, is I'd like you to, if you're here with a wife or a husband, is just join hands together. Or if you're with a family, you can pray together. But I, I would like us to hear one another praying to the Lord for him to move. And if you're uncomfortable doing that right now, that's fine. You can just make a motion like, I'd like to pray by myself. That's okay. Nobody's going to judge you for that. But we need to pray to the Lord this morning and ask him to convince us and convict us of his power, but also for him to stretch out his hand again through our words and through our works to make a difference. So right now, grab hold of the hand of the person next to you or your family, or if you're by yourself, you can do it by yourself. If you want to kneel, you can kneel, and let's pray to the Lord God the two points of this prayer.